We are back for another week in the world of SaaS. And my word, I'm so excited for this one. Who doesn't love a deep dive into the world of sales operations, sales management, and more? Well, we couldn't have a better guest for this topic, as I'm thrilled to welcome Pete Kazanji, co-founder at Atrium, the startup providing proactive, always-on insights for sales operations, managers, and leaders. Stop asking questions, start getting answers. And alongside Atrium, Pete is also the founder of Modern Sales Pros, a community of 15,000 plus focused on sales operations and sales management. Pete's also the author of Founding Sales, the canonical writing on early stage startup sales and prior to founding Atrium Pete founded Talentbin which ended in their exit to Monster Worldwide in February 2014 but before we move into the show today Lucidchart is a visual workspace that makes it easy to see and understand how your business works whether you're visualizing cloud architecture whiteboarding ideas for a breakthrough application or redesigning team structures to be more agile or even streamlining a process that will drive greater productivity Lucidchart helps you see how to make your business better more than 20 million people and 99% of the Fortune 500 rely on Lucidchart to see more, know more, and do more. Join them by trying Lucidchart for free at lucidchart.com forward slash 20VC. And speaking of amazing products like Lucidchart, there's always competition, and Ahrefs makes competitive analysis easy. Their tools show you how your competitors are getting traffic from Google and why. You can see the pages and content that send them the most search traffic, find out the exact keywords they're ranking for, and which backlinks are helping them rank. From there, you can replicate or improve on their strategies. If you're not getting significant search traffic, Ahrefs tools also help to find topics worth creating pages or content on. You can easily see estimated search volumes and gauge traffic potential with their Keywords Explorer tool. If you're getting search traffic, use features like their top pages, report to breakdown which of your pages are bringing in the most traffic, then figure out how you can replicate this success. Want to learn more? Check out their blog or YouTube channel for step-by-step SEO tutorials. I have to say the YouTube channel is actually my favorite. They have a seven-day trial for only $7. Head over to hrefs, that's A-H-R-E-F-S.com. It's a silent A at the beginning to sign up. And finally, a global pandemic, a grim economic forecast. Are you feeling the squeeze? An R&D tax credit can really help lower your burn. And if you qualify, and most tech startups do, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what stopping you. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions, and you can request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai forward slash 20. That's xbs.ai slash 20. But that's quite enough from me. So now without further ado, I'm so excited to welcome Pete Kazanji, co-founder at Atrium. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Pete, it is so great to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things from Carl at Sales Loft, from Brad at Seasonar. So thank you so much for joining me today, Pete. I am very excited to be here, Harry. Now, I would love to start today with a little bit of context. So it's a wonderful world, SaaS, but it's also an interesting one. So how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and how did you come to co-found Atrium? A little bit of a winding road, like I imagine most people. So as you know, currently the co-founder of Atrium, we make sales performance analysis software that continuously monitors key performance indicators of AEs, SDRs, et cetera, and bubbles up areas of interest to managers and operations and leaders. So that's my day job. This is my second software company. My previous software company was a company called Talentbin, which was a recruiting software company that started in 2010 and was acquired by Monster Worldwide in 2014. And so at Talentbin, 
that was kind of like my first training wheels, like SaaS business, and also the place where I started to learn and appreciate go to market. So I went from being a business generalist founder. So prior to that, I was in product marketing and product management at VMware, so like big enterprise software company. And then at Talentbin, realized very early on, like, oh, wow, <laughs> got to figure out how to sell this stuff or else the company's going to go out of business. So that was kind of like my first entry point to that. After Talentbin was acquired, I ended up writing a book on startup sales and sales for founders called Founding Sales. Mainly because <laughs> when I was at Talentbin and had no idea how to do direct selling, I was kind of like making it up as I went and trying to learn. And most of the literature is really for existing sales leadership or sales professionals, but not for people who have never sold before. So that's why I ended up writing Founding Sales. And just it's kind of that led into Atrium. It also led into Modern Sales, which is the sales operations leadership and enablement community that I run. It's an 18,000 person peer education community. So nowadays I'm I'll go to market all the time, but that's kind of like the winding road by which I ended up landing there. I do have to touch on the talent bin element because I'm always fascinated by kind of transferable learnings from these past successes and experiences. And I guess the question for me is like, when you self-reflect, what worked with talent bin that you took with you to Atrium? And on the flip side, what didn't work, which you kind of disregarded? So I think at talent bin, there were some key product insights that have informed how we've gone about doing things at Atrium and also some kind of key sales mess ups or errors that we made. So I think on the product side, one of the things that we realized early on was that automation is key, right? So Talentbin was the way to think about it is like LinkedIn recruiter for the entire internet. So we crawled Stack Overflow, GitHub, Twitter, Facebook, meetups, et cetera, et cetera, in order to populate a database of passive candidates for technical recruiters to search and engage with, which technical recruiters would oftentimes say like, hey, I really want to find candidates that other people don't have access to. But it turns out like doing that takes a lot of work, <laughs> like the searching and the writing and the emailing and the follow-up. And so early on at Talentbin, we had a lot of engagement challenges. And so what we realized is the more you could automate that Unsurprisingly, you see this in products like Outreach and Sales Loft, and of course, before that in marketing automation solutions like HubSpot and Marketo and what have you. But the more and more you could automate things, the better off <laughs> your customers would be. And so we really brought that to Atrium insofar as another thing that humans kind of hate to do is do metrics analysis, performance metrics analysis. And so if you could have software that just did that via statistics, did the continuous analysis, and then importantly, reasoning, like interpretation of those metrics, that would be something that sales managers and leaders would really appreciate since they didn't get into doing sales and sales management or like accounting and math all day. So that was something that like we did well. Something that we did really poorly at Talentbin early on was not really focusing on a very crisply defined ICP and insufficiently investing in customer success. It's kind of related to the first point a little bit about like automation and product engagement. But early on, and this is my failure as an early seller at Talentbin, like lesson learned, right? And this is in founding sales as a result. You know, we would sell to anything that would move, right? Like a VP of engineering would go to some conference and hear someone on stage talking about how they need to be spending all their time doing recruiting, et cetera, et cetera. They'd say, oh yeah, you know what? That's right. That sounds good. I'm going to go over here. I heard about Talentbin. I'm going to buy a seat for $8,000. Well, then it turns out that a VP of engineering doesn't have time in their day to do searching and writing outbound emails and so on and so forth. And so what would end up happening, of course, is that they wouldn't adopt, they wouldn't utilize. And of course, they churn, which is not great for your SaaS metrics. So I think that was something that we really took to heart 
and said, okay, we're going to focus on a very, very clear ICP of people who have this pain point, but importantly, like have time and energy in their day to adopt. And then also we're going to invest like crazy from a customer success standpoint to make sure that people onboard and then utilize well. And then of course, instrument that on an ongoing basis. So I talk about that stuff in the customer success chapter of founding sales as well. So lots of learnings. Ideally, you make these mistakes once, <laughs> right? I do want to double click there on the early sales journey there, because you know a lot of founders as you've seen many, many times, really struggle with this and getting their head around it. And you said before, founders need to sell themselves and they can't rely on others. I guess my question to you is first, like, why do you feel this is the case? And why does it have to be the founders in the early days? So I think if you think about the journey of a product and a product company, it goes from identifying a pain in the market, validating that that pain exists, building a solution that then proves that you're relieving that pain, that you're solving that problem, and then getting commercial exchange for that solution. Like, okay, great, I solved this problem. You need to give me money in exchange for that. And so if you think about those earliest steps, so A, identifying the pain point in the market, B, validating it. Those are kind of like customer development, customer research. So Eric Reese talks about it a lot, Lean Startup. Steve Blank talks about it a lot in Startup Owner's Manual, Four Steps of the Epiphany. And so the process by which you do that usually is to become a pretty substantial market expert as a founder. So like those are like product management behaviors. But then what ends up happening is you start transitioning to kind of what I like to call a weaponized product manager, where now you're turning around and you're engaging with parties who have this problem that you validated and proposing to them this solution that you've ideally validated with like beta customers or what have you. Well, that's a new problem to be solved or like that process right there of figuring out that sales motion, if you will, of saying, okay, this is who we talk to about this problem. This is how we talk about the product in a way that helps them understand, okay, yeah, this is worth me engaging with, et cetera. And so no one is going to be as expert as you in that problem space and how your solution fits that problem space. And so you're the preeminent expert on the fit between those two things at that point in time. And so you can imagine doing one of two things, either A, you get good at at low scale talking with and engaging these prospects, or alternatively, you could grab somebody else and then try to pour all that information that's in your brain into their brain and get them as expert as you. And so usually like the latter case, that's harder to do than the prior case. Because what ends up happening is you're kind of not playing a game of telephone. Now, eventually you'll have to get there. But just at that early, it's kind of like the Paul Graham thing of do things that don't scale. To start being a founder seller, it's not scalable. But what you're doing is you're maximizing your chances of success by virtue of avoiding kind of like that lossiness of kind of getting that information into somebody else's brain, who's then going to do it on your behalf. And then moreover, there's a feedback loop where early on you're going to be engaging these prospects and they're going to be telling you things like, yeah, that's actually bullshit. Or, oh, I actually have this other solution that already solves that problem or whatever. And that's actually really important information to feedback in the other direction upstream to product and engineering, what have you. And so the sooner you have abstraction, the earlier you have abstraction where that work is being separated in multiple human brains, the more opportunity there is for fall off and kind of like lost in translation stuff. And early on, you just don't want that. Can I ask, in terms of minimizing the friction on that kind of telephone call or osmosis of knowledge, so to speak, between (laughs) the first few sales reps, is there things that can be done to ease that, be it documenting extensively the process, the wording with, as we said, very granular documenting? Is it recording sales calls? How do you think about reducing the friction of that knowledge osmosis? So the first thing is, is you have to actually discover the knowledge 
<laughs> First, we have to discover how to make fire. And that's why the selling behavior has to be done initially by the founder and done not just like once and not just three times, but ideally a statistically significant amount of number of times such that what you're doing is you're mapping out the phrase that is used in the industry is a sales motion. But essentially what you're doing is you're discovering what is the appropriate sales motion, like who are the humans that need to be talked to and signed off on in what stages. So once you discover that knowledge, now it's a question of documentation. And so ideally what you're doing while you're discovering that knowledge, you're reinforcing and refining your own documentation. So as you're going through these initial sales conversations, you're iterating your sales deck. You're adding discovery questions. Oh, it turns out that I keep hearing this issue over here. I guess I should make sure to add another discovery question to my set of discovery questions that asks about this particular solution. To use the talent for an example, cool. Do you guys actually have a technical recruiter in-house? Oh, no, we don't. We only have engineering team. Okay, I'm going to disqualify you. So refining those materials, whether it's discovery questions or your sales deck, your talk tracks, your demo script, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of the work that's being done as you're mapping out that sales motion. And then ideally, if you've been doing a good job, now, congratulations, you have a bunch of documentation. Essentially, you've been making tooling for yourself such that then when you go to bring on other sellers... Well, ta-da, the materials are already there. And so that's another reason why that's really important. So totally with you on the importance there and the beauty of when those materials are there. In terms of when to bring on those extra individuals and when to hire your first reps, you know, there's so many statements put out in markets that, oh, it's when you hit a million in air or, oh, it's when you hit right. X, whatever that is. How do you think about it? And how do you advise us on when is the right time to hire their first sales reps? Yeah. So the right time to hire a incremental sales rep, it's when you know that you have a repeatable sales motion that is predictable in your hands. And so then the next step in the maturation of the organization is proving that you can abstract that into somebody else. Because the way that SaaS organizations get to scale, at least those that have a direct sale component versus self-serve, product-led, et cetera, is really just by hiring incremental reps who then get to success and then are essentially just little revenue machines who throw off bookings on a monthly basis. So the sooner you can prove that someone other than you can sell this thing, the better off you are. Because the end state that we want to get to is hundreds of reps selling this thing in a repeatable fashion. Well, the way that you get hundreds of reps to sell this thing in a repeatable fashion is to get one to start, <laughs> right? After you prove that you can repeatedly sell this yourself, the most important thing to then do, and this is challenging in early stage sales, because on the one hand, you're like, oh, I want to continue to scale my customer acquisition and what have you. So I want to keep selling. But at the same time, the thing that is the gate to your success is the ability to get someone else to do it such that then once you prove that, then it's like, okay, great. Well, now let's get three people to do this. Well, now let's get nine people. So A, it's important once you've proven that you can do it yourself, it's like, okay, wonderful. Let's pause on that. Maybe not 100% because it's always kind of, <laughs> especially if you're going to be talking to investors like, hey, where did this revenue dip come from? Oh, that's where I stopped selling and I onboarded two reps. Oh, well, it's really bad that your ARR depth right there. It's like, okay, well, what do you want from me, man? I had to onboard reps. So it's obviously there's a balance there, but really that becomes the next job is proving that somebody other than the founder can repeatedly sell it. Because it's like the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Getting that incremental rep who can sell repeatedly is the first step there. 
So totally with you on the repeatability and that's when you know it's the right time. I guess the next question for founders is like, and the one that I hear a lot is, Harry, they've got the amazing CV. They've just come out of Salesforce. They've just come out of, you name your top company uh, <laughs> and we can get them. Or there's this guy or girl and honestly, bit of a weird route into SaaS, but they're incredibly hungry and they're hustlers. How do you advise founders on the right profile candidate to go for in these first few sales hires? So most of our audience here on for Saster, I imagine, are SaaS companies that are probably selling into the mid-market, mid-market to start, maybe some enterprise, and usually selling like an innovative new product as opposed to a well-trodden solution. Usually what I recommend there, and I talk about this as a sales hiring chapter in Founding Sales. So I keep referencing chapters. Founding Sales is available online for free. It's just foundingsales.com. So like the entire book is like up on the web. <laughs> like you don't have to buy it. So one of the things that I talk about there is identifying reps from kind of the prior cohort of SaaS, of like successful SaaS companies in that space. So as a, for instance, say you were selling a new kind of creative recruiting solution and you were selling it yourself and you got to success. Well, maybe what you would do is it would probably be untoward to go look for an account executive out of like Talea Oracle or like success factors or what have you. Because usually like those reps are used to lots of marketing support. They're usually very highly compensated. Usually like later stage organizations are more upmarket, et cetera. Instead, what would probably be more ideal would be to look at reps who are fairly tenured, maybe in their second, third, fourth year at an organization like a greenhouse or a lever or what have you, right? So it's the cohort before your cohort look in the same space, or if you can't be in the same space necessarily, looking for a match of sales motion. So it's like, oh, okay, my sales motion, I'll use Atrium as an example. So Atrium makes sales performance analysis software. It has an easy in sales motion where people can just turn it on. It takes five minutes to set up. And we primarily engage with sales operations people, sales development leaders, and sales leaders, right? Those are the people who have the pain points that we solve. So the reps that we work with can come from a variety of places. We could have people who have previously sold to sales and so have some subject matter expertise there. That's cool. But we could also pull from organizations that maybe have sold analytics, right? Like a mid-market rep from like a looker or a mode analytics or something like that. That could also be a fit because that analytics sale is a multi-stakeholder sale. Usually there's analytics team and then maybe a data team and business users as well. So you got to engage with a number of different people in order to get the ball across the line. So what you can do is you can look for these kind of patterns, say, hey, does this person's prior experience, have they either sold into this space or are they familiar with a prior sales motion? The opposite, of course, of this would be something like, cool, I sell marketing analytics software and this rep is coming and my buddy knows a guy who previously sold at Yelp or Groupon or what have you. And it's like, well, that's like a pretty different sales motion, right? Like they're selling $500 contracts to mom and pop takeout shops in New York or whatever. That's kind of going to be a little bit of a different sales motion than selling recruiting software to HR people. So that's the way I guide people there. I'm really interested. You said about kind of the comp plans for the people at your Taleos, at your success factors. Comp plans is one that universally I find founders struggle with on the first reps that they're hiring. How do you advise sure. founders on structuring the right comp plan for those first few hires? Because it is a, I mean, how the fuck are they meant to know, especially for first time founders? Like, what would your lessons and advice be to them structuring them? 
Yeah. So this is another reason why selling yourself in a repeatable fashion is really helpful <laughs> because now you have proof it can be done. Like, yeah, hey, I was selling half time before and I would close about three deals a month at this average selling price. And like, I'm not even a professional seller. So like, you know, we could probably expect that you could sell four at a 15K ASP or whatever. And so based on that, like that seems defensible. Anyway, so like that's another reason why it's really powerful to have that statistical significance of your own kind of selling. Like a traditional SaaS comp plan is usually 50% base, 50% variable compensation. And that variable compensation, so say like $140,000, just use like a standard mid-market salesperson in San Francisco or New York, 140K on target, 70K base, 70k variable and that variable is usually based on 10 percent of 10 11 12 13 percent of booking so in that case like that's a 70k variable at 10 percent would imply seven hundred thousand dollars a year of bookings right so it's 55k 60k a month that's like a mature sales organization comp plan usually earlier on it's kind of harder where like okay well prove to me that somebody can sell this because this is what a sales rep is going to be looking at you and saying all right well i'm happy to take that comp plan but can you please prove to me that somebody has sold this sixty thousand dollars of bookings per month because that way i will know and i will have confidence that i will be able to attain my 140k ote and so usually that's hard because like you're talking about your first or second rep. It's like, yeah, well, I sold it a bunch, but yeah, you're right. We don't have repeatability with someone who's not me. And that's where I really like Jason Lemkin's early stage comp plan of a base salary, depending on where you are in the world, like 4K, 5K, 6K a month, and then essentially a 20% commission rate on bookings that exceed that base. So if somebody closes greater than $6,000 of bookings in a month. So say they close 30K of bookings, which would be 24. You net that out against the 6K and now you've got 24K of proceedings. Okay, pay 20% on that, right? Which would be 4.8K. So what that does is it de-risks things for the business where you don't have a rep who's upside down and costing the business a bunch of money. But on the flip side, they have a huge incentive to close business and they get to participate well on the upside. And then eventually what ends up happening is after you then have a couple of reps kind of selling like that, then we actually know what is the physics of the sales motion. Like, oh, it turns out that it's not really tenable for us to sell $60,000 of this offering a month. It's more like 40K. Okay, well, then that means that we have to change our compensation plan and probably means we're going to have to find lower cost salespeople. And this is why you see like SMB focused sales organizations like Zenefit or Yelp or Yext or what have you. Usually those sales organizations are in lower cost areas like Phoenix or Denver or fill in the blank. So that's the way to approach that early on. The challenging element for me is actually when you're in the enterprise sales segment and you're looking at your new rep and you're going, the average sales cycle is eight to nine months, say for these large ACVs. For that eight to nine months, you don't really know if they're doing well. You don't get much feedback. And bluntly, they can almost lose confidence given the length of the sale. How do you advise founders in terms of engaging and getting information in the ramp time of those enterprise sales reps in their first few hires? 
Yes, Harry, that is a problem. <laughs> you are correct. Uh, and so what really what this kind of comes down to, and this is literally what I spend my days thinking about, is leading indicators. Because the challenge that a lot of founders and people who are not familiar with direct selling is they oftentimes think it's magic. There's like a potion, there's magical incantations, etc. But really, the key to high performance sales is just a, a high quantity of high quality selling activity. And so the cool thing is, is that you can actually instrument that selling activity. So if you break down what a sales rep does in their day or in their week, they have meetings with customers, they email people, they have opportunities that are in their pipeline, their opportunities advance stages. And so by virtue of if you instrument that and you instrument those leading indicators, well, suddenly now you can understand, especially in a situation where there's a long time offset between the start of work, if you will, like an enterprise sales rep and kind of the outcomes. So like bookings or wins. Well, you can actually understand how they're pacing towards those, th those things. So are they engaging in a sufficient number of customer facing meetings? How many first meetings are they having a week? How many first meetings are they having a month? How many new opportunities are coming into their pipeline? Are those opportunities real? Right? Because they're advancing a stage. Are those opportunities real insofar as the reps are touching them and they're not just sitting in their pipeline languishing? And so instrumenting these dozens of KPIs, essentially putting telemetry around your reps is the way that you solve this rather than just crossing your fingers and your toes and then hoping that like magically deals pop out at the end of the quarter or at the end of the month or what have you. And so the cool thing, and this is essentially the essence of modern sales, is by virtue of the fact that a sales process can be decomposed into its constituent parts and that moreover, you can instrument those constituent parts. Well, now all of a sudden you can look into the future and say, hey, I know that you're not going to get there in three or four months because I'm looking at your leading indicators right now, your customer facing meeting behavior, new ops, you know, number of accounts you're interacting with, number of contacts you're interacting with. And it is out of band as compared to the other reps on our team or me. And so we have to remediate this or in three or four months, we're all going to be real, real sad. And but the good news is we're not going to wait to be real, real sad four or five months from now, we're going to take action right now. So really what the answer to your question is, Leading Indicators, Leading Indicators, Leading Indicators. It's a phenomenal book by a gentleman named Jason Jordan called Cracking the Sales Management Code. We, we give them out like crazy at Atrium. We give them the people in exchange for discovery conversations. It's really kind of great because we work with sales operations people and sales leaders are like, hey, this is a phenomenal book that like preaches the gospel of instrumenting leading indicators and in sales organizations. Would you like a copy to talk about leading indicators and in sales organizations with a company that makes software that does it? Oh, great. Yes. But it's a phenomenal book that I recommend people check out. And that's just the way to solve that. So I'm totally with you on the leading indicators. I think where I struggle, honestly, is where do you set the goals? Because you've got to have the balance of like achievable, but a stretch, but also not too much of a stretch where it's like, oh, there's no way I can get to this goal. How do you think about the balance of achievable versus two optimistic targets? What is an appropriate goal? Can we just like pull it out of our ass and be like, yeah, here you go. Seems like you should be able to do this. No. Right. And so the key to setting appropriate goals is one, you want them to be reasonable and attainable. So then the question is like, okay, well, how do we know that they're, they're attainable? And moreover, what you want is you want to have goals, not just from an output standpoint, like, Hey, you got to get to a million dollars of bookings or you're fired. But back to our previous point, you also want to set goals on those leading indicators as well. So then you would say, okay, well, what are the appropriate levels of those leading indicators? Well, there's a couple of ways you can figure that out. One, you can base it off of historical performance 
of other reps in your organization. So this is something that we do with our customers all the time is we light up their data in Atrium. They usually have like very poor visibility into their sales organization, their SDR organization, what have you. And so very quickly, within 10 minutes, they can kind of see all the historical performance levels, KPI levels of their various reps. So that's actually very helpful because now you can say, oh, okay, I can squint at this and say, yeah, it looks like our SDRs, historically they've created around like, you know, 10 or 12 opportunities per month. Okay, let's set the goal at 10, right? So you can use your historics. The other thing you can do is you can do bottoms up. And this is, again, kind of the crux of modern sales. It's not dissimilar to Frederick Winslow Taylor, modern management kind of time and motion studies where you can say, hey, there's 40 hours in a week, there's 50 hours in a week. What do we want to have our people spending their time on? What is the amount of time it takes in order to have a customer facing meeting, send an email to a prospect, make a dial, things like that. And so you can do a bottoms up approach where you can say, hey, I'll use our Atrium AEs as an example. So usually they'll have like a 30-minute discovery call with somebody, typically turn on the data for that organization by connecting into their CRM. They'll usually have about 15 minutes of prep before that meeting. They'll probably have about 30 minutes of follow-up afterwards. They then have to do a little bit of setup on that person. This is just one opportunity. They have to do a little bit of setup on that person's instance, and then they reconvene a few days later to have like a data review meeting, which is usually an hour takes a half hour in prep before that, about a half hour in follow-up after that. And so pretty quickly, what you can hear me saying is like, I'm adding a layer cake of time for an account executive, like things that they have to do in order to run an opportunity. And then you just kind of divide that out based on how much time there is in a week. And so pretty quickly, you start to understand, okay, well, given the fact that this is what is required in order to run an opportunity or in the case of a CSM to onboard a customer in the case of an SDR to do prospecting or what have you, pretty quickly, you can add that up and say, okay, with like potty breaks and lunch and Instagram time or whatever, this is the total amount of things that can be done in a given week or in a given month. And so that's a bottoms up approach. And then the last thing you can do is you can do benchmarking between different organizations. And so usually what you want to do is do all those things and then kind of like squish them together in a pot and like whisk them, right? And kind of like, all right, so like based on all these things, I'm interpolating that you should have 15 customer facing meetings a week. Five of them should be first customer meetings. Ideally, we want to see five opportunities coming into your pipeline per week. Multiply all this by four on a monthly basis. And then based on a 20% win rate, which is what we've historically had, this is the number of wins that should come out of that. And our ASP has historically been 20K. And so the, all of that backs into this amount of bookings. And so like now what we've got is an entire linkage between leading, leading indicators, level of activity metrics, and then output metrics like wins and bookings crossed with quality metrics like win rate, opportunity conversion. So now we've got this entire linkage and so now we can instrument that and we say, hey, you know what? I'm worried about you because three weeks in a row, you've had fewer than five new opportunities coming into your pipe. And so given that our sales cycle is historically 70 days, I'm worried that in 70 days from now, we're going to be having a really sad conversation. So we need to get your new opportunity ingestion up. Right? So that's the way to approach that. I'm too intrigued not to touch on that. And final one before the quick fire, because I could chat to you all day, is essentially like absolutely when you look at like opportunities coming into pipe, SDRs and AEs could point and say, well, marketing aren't delivering the inbound. They're not giving me high quality candidates. And then you see the intrusion sometimes of sales into the marketing realm. And I guess my question is, how do you feel about AEs and SDRs going out and finding their own pipe? Should it be segmented? No, like that is not your role. Or is it a absolutely, this is a hunt for hunt's sake and well done to you for doing so. 
Yeah. So I think it kind of depends on the sales motion. What you want to see is proactivity and high activity. Like again, the secret to sales performance is just a high quantity of high quality selling behavior. I know that sounds simplistic, but really that's just kind of the secret. And so what you want from an AE and an SDR is you want to see that constant motor. They see somebody mentioning something on LinkedIn, somebody tweets something XYZ about hiring a bunch of sales. Like use Atrium as an example. Somebody's talking about how they're hiring a bunch of AEs. Oh, you're hiring a bunch of AEs? That means that you're going to be ramping a bunch of people. Ramping a bunch of people means that you should be paying attention to their leading indicators and ramp. Uh Uh-oh, this seems like somebody might need Atrium. Let's go and investigate. So you want people to constantly have that hunger and proactivity. Now, that being said, there's the question of like Eli Whitney, uh, interchangeable parts and like specialization, like relative advantage, specialization, same with like, you know, Henry Ford, et cetera. There is efficiency gains to be had in specialization and relative advantage. So for instance, SDRs are junior salespeople. They cost less. And so to the extent that you can have them engaging in behavior that is important, like prospecting behavior, identifying accounts, identifying contacts, engaging them, sending emails to them, calling them, et cetera, et cetera. Those are behaviors an account executive could do as well, but they're lower value behaviors. And I don't mean to sound dismissive at all. They're very important behaviors. They're just lower value than having a closing conversation with a CMO or what have you. And so the beauty of kind of a modern specialized sales organization where you can abstract that out and say, hey, SDRs are going to be responsible for prospecting, and they're measured on new opportunity creation. They're quote-unquote openers versus deal runners and closers. And then our AEs are going to be focused on having discovery meetings, having business conversations, doing presentations, doing demos, doing consultation, kind of higher value behavior. Well, that abstraction and specialization can be very powerful because now you can have somebody who costs you $70,000 a year doing that behavior that would otherwise have to be done still by the account executive for $140,000, $150,000 a year. And so this is the beauty of modern sales behaviors or sales organizations where a CRM can be used to orchestrate that behavior. Uh, SDR creates the opportunity, gets handed off to the AE, no balls get dropped, nobody gets confused, and these handoff processes happen seamlessly. I'm presenting a platonic ideal version of this. Of course, it's usually messy in practice, but that can be very powerful. Now, the thing that you don't want to have is capture the upside of that specialization and relative advantage. What you don't want is to then facilitate kind of lethargy or like lose that hunting spirit on the part of the account executives. Like, oh yes, I will just sit back and opportunities will arrive to me on a silver platter. SDR, please peel these grapes. Thank you. You don't want to have that situation. And so usually what ends up is either A, through good instrumentation, right? It's like, look, the reason why you're not doing prospecting is because you're having 15 customer facing meetings a week and like you barely have time to go to the bathroom. In that situation, fine. But if you're not fully utilized, you should be spending your time prospecting and maybe we even KPI that. So a lot of times my answer to a lot of these questions are like, yeah, just better expectation setting and better instrumentation is the way to like capture upside without encountering the downside. Yeah, no, listen, I'm totally with you. And that was a brilliant presentation. As you said, sometimes it doesn't always work out quite like that in terms of the perfectly specialized roles. I do want to move though, Pete, into my favorite, which is essentially a quick fire round. So I say a short statement. You hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready for this intensely pressurized round? Uh, Hopefully I don't disappoint you, Harry. This is what 15 years of, you know, doing the grind of startups has been about. These next five questions. Why do people from more technical backgrounds not go into sales? I think usually it's because there's just confusion or lack of familiarity as to what is possible in sales and that it's not magic, that you can learn it the same way that you can learn JavaScript. You can learn to have 
conversations with people who you don't know. My friend, Jeremy Donovan, who leads sales strategy and operations at SalesLoft had a really good point about this the other day too. If you're graduating with a STEM degree, well, you usually get a pretty good compensation immediately out of school. Now you might be capped from a total earnings standpoint, like you might not ever be like a VP of sales earning a million dollars a year or what have you. But coming out of school or university, as Harry would say, you, maybe you can make yourself, you can make like $100,000 or $120,000 versus getting on the sales kind of train. You would start as an SDR making $70,000 a year or what have you. But I think it's like a familiarity thing. And this is where folks like you, like publishers and educators and things like founding sales will help people understand like, oh yeah, this isn't scary. It's not complicated. Like I can do this too. Totally. No, absolutely. And I find it terrifying that people are actually influenced by my work, which hopefully is a good thing. But uh, <laughs> it sounds more of an art or a science today. You know, we listen to you and we talk about leading indicators. We talk about ratios, metrics so intensely. Has sales been transformed into a science, not an art? It's both. It's artistic behavior, persuasion, empathy, communication that can be scientifically instrumented. And so there's a really delightful feedback loop there where you can very quickly understand that somebody is having poor quality, like their artistry is off. You can understand that somebody's artistry is off by virtue of looking scientifically at the echoes, at the, the metrics echoes of that artistry. So for instance, we see this a lot with our customers. When SDRs are promoted to AE, usually they're very high activity still because SDRs are good at being high activity. But if they haven't been sufficiently trained and onboarded to the AE role, oftentimes they'll struggle with having high quality discovery conversations and, and what have you. So what you'll see is you'll see poor conversion rates from the first stage of an opportunity, discovery or what have you, to demo and further conversation, what have you. So the answer to it, and maybe the unsatisfying answer to it is, is that it, it really is both, but it's unlikely that like you're going to science the entirety of sales because sales is about discovering pain points, empathizing with people and their pain points, then also persuading them that this is the thing that they should be focused on solving and that it's actually, this should be a higher priority versus a lower priority. And those things are very artistic in nature, but then scientifically instrumenting that and then being methodical about like the execution of that at scale across many, many, many reps, that's definitely a science. If you could change one thing about the world of SaaS and sales today, what would it be, do you think? I think that the, and this is happening already, I think that the focus on got to hire some closers, got to close some business is really kind of an anachronism. And I think this is partially driven by the fact that you have a lot of founders who don't have a sales background, understandably, like I didn't, who have only seen this stuff in the movies. Their only experience with sales is used car sales or buying a car or watching Glengarry Glenn Ross or what have you. And so they have these misconceptions and especially even like older school sales where they was kind of like this, have these like anachronistic behaviors that are still kind of working their way out of the ecosystem versus the crux of a modern seller to me is the way that I like to phrase it is the consultant that has like a predilection for a particular solution. So at Atrium, all of our customer success people at Atrium are former sales operations people. So they're essentially the same category of professional as the people that we sell to because it's important for them to be able to support our sales operations customers, our sales leaders, et cetera, et cetera. Our AEs, I train the hell out of them so they can speak sales strategy and sales operations, sales analytics, like a 28-year-old AE can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a 45-year-old VP of sales on sales performance analysis 
because I need them to be able to like have a consultative conversation, like a good business conversation with that person. And so the more we can focus on good consultation, good problem finding, and then fitting of that solution to that problem that's been discovered, or alternatively, if there's no problem, be like, great, hey, you know what, have a good day. Here's your copy of that book. And we're not going to pursue this conversation. That's like the ideal model of sales. And I think we're trending in that direction. It's just kind of taking some time. Pete, as I said, I had so many good things about you before the show. I was really excited for this one. And we totally went completely off the schedule, but that's a sign of a brilliant interview. So thank you so much for joining (laughs) today. And I've absolutely loved this. Yeah, so it was an absolute delight, Harry. I look forward to continuing to listen to all of your various podcasts across your various properties. Absolutely loved having Peter on the show there. And if you'd like to see more from him, you can find him on Twitter at Kazanji. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. You can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. However, before we leave you today, LucidShot is a visual workspace that makes it easy to see and understand how your business works. Whether you're visualizing cloud architecture, whiteboarding ideas for a breakthrough application, or redesigning team structures to be more agile, or even streamlining a process that will drive greater productivity, LucidShot helps you see how to make your business better. More than 20 million people and 99% of the Fortune 500 rely on LucidChart to see more, know more, and do more. Join them by trying LucidChart for free at lucidchart.com forward slash 20VC. And speaking of amazing products like LucidChart, there's always competition, and Ahrefs makes competitive analysis easy. Their tools show you how your competitors are getting traffic from Google and why. You can see the pages and content that send them the most search traffic, find out the exact keywords they're ranking for, and which backlinks are helping them rank. From there, you can replicate or improve on their strategies. If you're not getting significant search traffic, Ahrefs tools also help to find topics worth creating pages or content on. You can easily see estimated search volumes and gauge traffic potential with their Keywords Explorer tool. If you're getting search traffic, use features like their top pages, report to breakdown which of your pages are bringing in the most traffic, then figure out how you can replicate this success. Want to learn more? Check out their blog or YouTube channel for step-by-step SEO tutorials. I have to say the YouTube channel is actually my favorite. They have a seven-day trial for only $7. Head over to hrefs, that's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com. It's a silent A at the beginning to sign up. And finally, a global pandemic, a grim economic forecast. Are you feeling the squeeze? An R&D tax credit can really help lower your burn. And if you qualify, and most tech startups do, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions, and you can request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai forward slash 20. That's xbs.ai slash 20. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.